0: It's Father's Day. Father's Day. On Father's Day, what we'd like to try to do is consider the importance of fathers in our lives. I was just having a conversation earlier about someone who grew up in a really difficult stepfather situation. Wasn't nurturing, wasn't, wasn't ideal. When we grow up in situations, good, bad, or indifferent, it imprints us. Now, the truth of the matter is that we are much more formed by the trauma and the difficulties of our past than we are by the love and devotion and and the good things. And I don't know if that intuitively sits well with you right now, but think about it, because it's the difficult things, it's the traumatic things, especially in our childhood, that cause us to need to put programs in place, programs for survival, programs for happiness. It colors the way that we look at relationships, colors the way that we look at life. It colors our attitudes towards life you know are people basically trustworthy or are people predators that need to be outmaneuvered and constantly defended against and the relationship that we have with our biological father, our stepfather, whoever fills in that place has a lot to do with how we look at our father god and not only that just all the situations and circumstances of life my mother's day we talked about how language the Hebrew language defined the roles of mother and father in the family unit. And to the Hebrews, the family unit was everything. And of course, it wasn't just the nuclear family the way we understand it. There is no word for cousin in Hebrew or Aramaic. And so everybody were brothers and sisters, and everyone was understood that way. One big clan, the Mishpacha, which was everybody included. You know, it's, it's kind of like in, in Hawaiian culture, you know. The family is, is everybody and not just a nuclear family. And so, these roles, the patriarch, was extremely important. The patriarch of a family, the patriarch of a clan, was like a king, was like a ruler. And so, Ab, which literally means strong house in Hebrew, the Ab, the father, the patriarch, was the one who gave strength to the house, just like the tent pole that, that, that held everything up. And so, the the Ab, the father, the patriarch was the king, he was the judge, he was the administrator, he was the executioner, you know, he was the general of the army, which was all the, the brothers who formed the army. They were the het, the strong wall. And each of these words, M, mother, strong water, which, Idiomatically, in that culture, means the glue that holds the family together. And so the father is a strong house and the woman is a strong relator, the one who holds everything together, both logistically and domestically, but also emotionally. And so the mother was seen as mercy and compassion. The mother was seen as unconditional love. But the father was someone who expected something of you. See the difference? So here's mother loving you as you are loving every face that only a mother could love. But the father is expecting something. The father is setting standards. And if there's, as long as there's a balance, everything is fine. As long as there's a balance, kids grow up understanding that the love, the unconditional love, the acceptance in the family is their launching pad from which they can then go and accomplish the things that are expected of them in life, beginning with father within the home and then reflected in society beyond. We need both. You know, it's going to be kind of like Goldilocks kids. In other words, they're going to be too soft or too hard if the parents fall down on one side or the other too strongly. And don't give that mix of structure and discipline, but also of love and acceptance, just as the child is. And for each one of us growing up, that balance needs to be maintained. But see, here's the thing. You know, the church has seen Father seeing God as father. And that, that sense of God as father has far overshadowed any sense of God as mother too. And on Mother's Day we talked about how in Hebrew culture there was a strong sense of God being the perfect balance between the two. That not only was he father God, but he was also mother God in the sense of chokmah, which is the word that they use for wisdom. But wisdom personified as a female, the feminine attributes of mercy and compassion and wisdom. And that balance of the two is there. But why do we spend so much time thinking of God as masculine, thinking of his father to the exclusion of the feminine? Well, the biggest reason, especially in Western Christianity, is because God is never called mother in the scriptures, either Old Testament or New Testament. And so we think, oh, because of that, then he's got these attributes over here and we take a leap. But the hidden in the culture is the balance. Now, Jesus never calls God Father. <laughs> what am I saying? Jesus never calls God Mother. You know. He never does that. He calls him Father. We spent a couple of uh, weeks ago, we spent some time talking about how many people in Western culture like to look at Jesus as a social revolutionary. Okay? someone who was really trying to work from the top down and reinstitutionalize everything, make sure that women and children had a seat at the table, make sure that the marginalized all had a chance to come in. And he was a revolutionary politically as well because the people thought that he was going to be there to wipe out the Romans and bring a sovereign nation back to Israel and all that sort of thing. But Jesus was none of those things. If you really read the scriptures, if you read between the lines, you will see That Jesus was an accidental radical. He wasn't an on-purpose radical. What was he purposeful about? He was purposeful about complete and utter connection and oneness with his Father, which made him utterly and completely and purposefully one and connected with everyone else, no matter who they were. Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, Roman, Woman, child, it didn't matter to Jesus. Someone who was completely standing within the law, someone who was wildly outside of the law, a sinner. Jesus was equally at home, equally at one, equally at peace with every single person who came across his path. And further, he would sit at table with anyone who came across his path, who wanted to sit with him. And that oneness made him look like a social radical, made him look like he was trying to restructure Jewish life in the first century. But really what he was trying to do was show his father's love to everyone he encountered, everyone who was in his path. And because of that, Jesus had an ingenious way of expressing this balance that he found in Father God. Because how in the world was he going to be able to be at one with everyone he met even those who culture dictated that he should shun, you know, that he should keep out of, of connection with. It's because of the oneness that he had with his father. Experiencing that oneness, experiencing the good news of Father was everything about who he was. It animated all his choices and it ma- animated his message. And the way he expressed that was with Abba. He called God Abba. Now in that culture, that's Father but it is an extension of it. Some people have said that is the diminutive, the affectionate, the, the word that, that children use. That means daddy, just like Emma. The, the extension of M means mommy. That might be a bridge too far. Scholars are constantly fighting over these kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is that no matter how you slice it, Abba certainly refers to your father, the one that you grew up with, the one who was strong house for your household. And it was a term of absolute affection, absolute endearment. It could be translated as my father, or it could be translated as our father. But at any rate, it was there was a sense that there was no separation. That this father wasn't way up here somewhere on a throne and the rest of us down here. Was Jesus unique in calling his God Father? No. The Old Testament refers to God as Father, but here's the distinction that's usually the father of Israel, the father of the entire nation. There's no evidence that individuals referred to God as father, referred to him as king, Hashem, the name, Adonai, Lord, but Jesus calls him Abba. And so that intimacy, that connection, is the lived expression of Jesus' relationship with his father that animates everything that he does and it incorporates both mother and father Mercy, compassion, wisdom, along with those things that are expected of us, the structure and the discipline and the things of accomplishment. And so this balance is what is absolutely so critical. This this way of looking at God that incorporates more than just the things that we think we need to do in order to be accepted. We need the launching pad of the experienced knowledge, the knowing that we are already accepted. And yet there are still things that we need to do. But that doing is now going to flow out of a place of love, a place of connection and relationship, rather than a striving after something to bring in out of fear, out of something that we think that we need, that we do not have. So all of this is included in just this one word, Abba, Abba. It balances the king and the servant and all of that. So Jesus had moved away from the formal and liturgical form and had moved into this relational form. And the question is, how did he do that? Well, we say, well, he was God. But I think that misses an essential point. At the same time that Jesus was God, at the same time that Jesus was one with the Father, he was also fully human, fully man. And the scriptures leave enough clues for us to see that Jesus had to struggle, wrestle with, his own human compulsions and fears and whatever was going on in his human side that was keeping him from this full oneness and connection with his Father. What's the 40 days in the desert about if not that experience that Jesus had to go through, that we all have to go through? The scripture tells us that the Spirit impels him out into the wilderness, it says that he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, that he's pushed to exhaustion, pushed to extremes, and that there are three temptations, milestones that he needs to cross, which really, when you analyze them, are symbolic of all of the human compulsions. The need to be relevant, the need to be powerful, the need to be spectacular, that's at the root of all of our drives, if you really think about it. Any fear-based person who thinks that you're still striving to get something in that makes you acceptable is going to want to be in control, is going to want to be relevant, and is going to want to stand out in the crowd to leave a a legacy, to be somebody, all of those things. And through this struggle, which was probably a lot longer than 40 days, which itself is a symbolic number, an initiation into a rebirth, Jesus is moving into this and understanding more and more how he is one with the Father and who this Father is, and at the same time showing us the shape of our journey, that there needs to be this descent, there needs to be this, this chipping away This peeling away period where everything that we think we know that was taught to us in family and culture just gets stepped aside enough to be able to see what is really there. And so Jesus has the shape to his journey as recorded in the New Testament. But many others do as well. And I wanted to take a look at a couple of these so we can see the journey to actually seeing Father's face, the journey to seeing what this looks like. So we can have a better handle on what our journey is going to need to look like. How many of you know the story of Jacob? Remember Jacob? Okay. Ya'akob in, in Hebrew. It means heel catcher. His name means heel catcher. It means supplanter. All right. It means trickster. It can mean all of those things. And the story of Jacob is that he was a twin. All right. And he was the one who came out second. And his, his uh, mother, Rachel, was said to be really sick during pregnancy because the twins were constantly fighting in her, room, in her womb and creating all this ruckus down there. And when it t- came time to give birth, Esau comes out first, but Jacob comes out right after holding on to his ankle. <laughs> and that defines his life. That defines his character. His whole life is lived like a schemer. His whole life is lived trying to make things happen and trying to the first thing he does that's recorded is he steals his older brother's birthright from him because it was the oldest that would be blessed by the patriarch to be able to partake in the estate and run the estate after him but through all his trickster ways and putting you know, sheepskin on his arms to simulate his, his brother's hairy arms. He gets the blessing from his blind father instead of Esau, which sets up a tribal enmity, an enmity between him and his brother, between his brother's clan and his clan, that lasts for the next 20 years. In fact, it gets bad enough that the parents advise Jacob to get out of town, which he does. He fly, flees up north to Haran, which would be modern-day Syria, And he finds Rachel there and he gets married and he stays in the service of Laban for about 20 years. And then he realizes he really needs to come back, but he's afraid of Esau. He's afraid of what Esau is going to do. Esau has become a powerful patriarch in his own right, within his own clan. And so as he's heading south back to Canaan, when he gets to the river Yabok a little stream there, a tributary of the Jordan. He stops there and camps there, and he divides his clan into two camps because he reasons that if he gets off and he gets across the Yabok uh, stream and he's attacked by Esau, one clan will get it and the other one will escape. But he has other ideas too. He sends all his livestock before him, hundreds of head of goats and sheep and cattle as peace offerings to Esau. He sends messengers out there ahead of him to try to soften him up, right? And then after all this goes across, he finally sends his family across. And then he's the last one on the north side of the stream at night. And he's fixing to go across in the morning. And this is where Genesis 32 picks up. And I wanted to read just a little bit so you can see... What happens at this critical moment in Jacob's life? At Genesis 32.22, in your bulletins or up on the screens, this is Jacob right there on the north side of the stream. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Yobok. And he took them and sent them across the stream. He sent sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, when the man saw that Jacob had had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, the man says to Jacob, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So there he is. He's still there, right? But this idea of let me go, they've been wrestling all night long. And finally the dawn is coming and the man says, let me go. If you can imagine, here's Jacob. Here's the schemer. Here's the self-reliant one, the one who was always able to come up with a solution to his plan. He's now lame. He can't walk. He can't stand on his own. And he's just clinging to this man. Let me go. you know. Don't cling to me. Reminds us of Jesus telling Mary in the garden after the resurrection, don't cling to me. You know, there's a new way that you're going to stand on your own. Here is Jacob finally realizing his own dependence. Here is Jacob finally realizing his own powerlessness. Here is Jacob finally just leaning on his God for the first time. And yes, it says a man there. But in context, in the Hebrew language, this would be a messenger, which was the same as God himself. The messenger and the message, or the sender of the message, was all one thing in Hebrew thought. And so Jacob was literally wrestling with God. If you think about it, at night, with all of his possessions, all his family, everything that he owned, across that stream on the other side in the darkness, and he alone praying to his God for Esau to be merciful, for Esau to allow him to come back home, he finally comes to the point where he's wrestling with the last vestiges of himself and then he finally learns to let go. And this is recognized by God in the next paragraph. So the man, God, says to Jacob, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? Here's Jacob trying to get back a little control. What's your name? Come on. You know, why is it that you ask me your name? But he said, why? Um, And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. But Peniel means his face of God. So Jacob named the place Peniel. I've seen God face to face. My life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. And so this is the story of Jacob's coming into being finally seeing God's face. It came through this long process of wrestling, finally coming to a place of dependence, finally coming to the end of himself, to the, from the end of all his own personal solutions and ways that he could do things on his own. And then finally he realizes, and God renames him, from Yaakov, from the trickster and the supplanter, the schemer, to Israel, which means one who has striven with one who rules with, one who prevails with God, which was then transferred to the nation itself. But here's the interesting thing. Throughout the rest of Genesis, Jacob is referred to one of the other names alternating all the way through. Sometimes he's called Jacob and sometimes he's called Israel. And it's really confusing for us Western readers. Why is it happening that way? Well, there could be lots of reasons. The one I like is that he was still wrestling (laughs) and moving back and forth. At times, trying to take control. At times, trying to make things happen under his own steam, and then realizing again that he just needed to relax and prevail with God and not with himself. But look at that wrestling period. Look at that descent. Look at that 40 days of coming to a place where he finally sees God's face. And what about Moses? We've been talking about Moses over the last few weeks. Moses spending 40 years, there's that 40 again, that time of initiation, into a rebirth. Forty years in the backwater of the Midian with Jethro. Getting that shepherd's consciousness together, right? Tending his sheep out in solitude and silence to the point where he finally notices that the burning bush he sees in front of him is not being consumed. And yet even though he realizes that he's standing on holy ground and takes off his shoes, what does he do? He starts arguing with God. Don't send me. I stutter. I got a speech impediment. Send somebody else. What if they don't believe me? Who in the heck are you anyway that's sending me? All of these things to the point that God gets really irritated at him. But he starts right off. And his whole next 40 years, leading the people of Israel to the promised land, is marked with a really contentious relationship between the people themselves who are so contentious and Moses needing to deal with them and deal with God, it's always a back and forth. You just see it going all over the place. Another wrestling with God. But at the same time, Moses is present to his God. Take a look here at Exodus 33, starting at verse 8. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all of the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. This is the tent of meeting the uh, movable sanctuary. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. That's pretty close. Ongoing daily and yet at the same time Moses has still not actually seen God's face how do we know take a look at verse 18 then Moses said this is another time i pray you show me your glory this is when he's on the mountain and god says i myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the lord before you and i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and i will show compassion on whom i will show compassion but he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It is just a beautiful image of God caring for Moses as a father would care for a child. I want to do this, Daddy. I want to do this. Okay, well, here's a safe place for you to stand. Now you do this, and I'll do this, and just kind of orchestrating the whole thing so that he'll be safe. And yet at the same time, though he speaks face-to-face, is the idiomatic expression, as a friend would speak to his friend with God, there is still that mystery. There is still that part of God that can't be seen, quote-unquote, that can't be understood. And yet that has no bearing on the intimacy, the compassion, the connection of the relationship. Once again, it's that paradox that we have to learn how to live with if we're really going to be successful at living life. There are things we can know, and there's things we can't know. And thank God, what would life be like with no mystery? What be life would be like without anything that you still had to figure out? be like playing tic-tac-toe for the rest of your life. How boring would that be? You've got to figure it out. If you're past the age of seven, you've got to figure it out, right? There is still mystery. There are parts of God that can't be seen. And yet, we can still have that connection. And here's Moses moving through that wrestling period, wanting to see, being told, stand here, having to come to terms with this, moving and shaking. It's this dance that we do with God. It's the same dance that we do with any relationship where trust is at stake, where risk is at stake. David, story of David, same thing. Those of you who know the story of David know that he was up and down and all over the place, But what he wrote in Psalm 22 is so instructive of this wrestling period that we're talking about. Psalm 22 starts with the famous lines that Jesus repeats from the cross. For he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, elsewhere in scripture it says expressly, God will never leave or forsake us. But for David, it sure feels like that right now. Where he's at in his wrestling period. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. Yet, here's the other side, you are holy. O you who are enthroned um, upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And now he goes back, but I'm a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And yet back again, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And then back again, "'Be not far from me, for trouble is near, "'for there is none to help. "'Many bulls have have surrounded me. "'Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. "'They open wide their mouth at me "'as a ravening and roaring lion. "'I am poured out like water, "'and all my bones are out of joint. "'My heart is like wax. "'It is melted within me. "'My strength is dried up like a potsherd, "'and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, "'and you lay me in the dust of death.' For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. All the presage of the crucifixion, right? But then finally, But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. So this is the prayer for all schizos among us. Back and forth and back and forth. Israel, Jacob, you know, Moses back and forth, David back and forth. This is the wrestling. This is the dance that we do, but it's the necessary dance. As we move forward into relationship, as we get scared and pull back, and as we find the, the, the courage to move forward again, more and more finding out who this father is. What is the face of this father? This is, what, this is the shape of everybody's journey. And then finally, it's reflected in Philip, At John 14, Jesus has just told everybody, told all his disciples that he's going to be leaving them and they're freaking out. And so Philip says to him, Lord, just show us the Father and it is enough for us. (laughs) We see you, we know what you're saying, but will you please just show us this Father, this Abba you keep talking about, and then, then, you know, it's like, just give me a burning bush and then I'll be okay. You know, just give me something, give me that sign. I just... And what does Jesus say? Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? You can almost see him slapping his forehead. It's just like exacerbation, uh, exasperation. What in the world? Have you been so long with me, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, has seen Abba. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me. But it's such a natural human thing. We want to see the unseen thing. Moses wants to see the face of God. Jacob has to wrestle all night. David spends his whole life ping-ponging and yet is always God's beloved. And here's Philip again asking, Please, show us the Father. Show us what is going on here. Jesus finally saw his father's face. At what point, we have no idea. But we know that there was a period that he had to grow and had to learn and had to wrestle with his humanity, which is the inspiration that we can take. When Jesus said, These things you see me do, you can do. We can do this. We can do what Jesus did. He's showing us the shape of the journey. He's showing us the way that we can live that will bring us face to face with our Father. Because the search for Father, if you really think about it, is also the search for ourselves. Jesus understood his identity, and the way he expressed his identity was that I and the Father are one. There's no daylight between us. There's nothing that I do that the Father doesn't do through me. And everything the Father does is done through me. He has become my essence. He has become everything that I am. And this is what is happening. As we search for Father, we're searching for ourselves. Because how in the world can we know who we are until we first know who Father is? That ultimate reality that place from which we came and to which we are returning, this ground of love and acceptance, deliverance and forgiveness, until we have tasted that, until we have experienced that, until we know all the way down to our socks and the center of our bones that this is true, that this is reality. How are we going to know who we are? We are an expression of that reality. And until we can say with Jesus that I and the Father are one, then how are we going to know who we are? And so this journey is exactly what's going on. And then the question is raised, when you finally do meet Abba face to face, what is it that you have met? Who is this Abba? What are the attributes there? I don't think Jesus says any clearer who Abba is, except in the parable, the story that we call the prodigal son. Y'all know what prodigal means, by the way? (laughs) What's prodigal mean? (laughs) The troubled one? The challenging one? The worrisome one? I always thought it was the one who returned. That's what I thought prodigal meant, you know, the one who comes back. You know what prodigal really means? It's, it's, It's close. Prodigal is someone who is just a spendthrift. Someone who recklessly spends money, who extravagantly and lavishly and wastefully spends. That's a prodigal. And so it's describing the son as he went out on his journey. You know, not the fact that he came back. That has nothing to do with it. And so if you don't know the story, a man has two sons. You know, the elder son is the one who colors inside the lines. The elder son is the one who does everything that he's supposed to do. And the younger son is a rebel. <laughs> he's the troublemaker. He's the one who's the handful. And at a certain point, the younger son comes to his father and asks him for his inheritance now. Which in that culture is like saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. You might as well be dead. All I want is what I can get out of you. And not only that, then he takes the money and leaves. The amazing thing is the father gives him the money. You know what a boy was, would have deserved in that culture asking for that? He would have gotten stoned. That was a capital offense to dishonor your father and your mother in Jewish society. And yet the father gives him his inheritance, everything that he is due. And boy well, promptly takes it and goes out into a faraway land and becomes prodigal. Starts spending it every which way, doing everything that he can think of doing until all the money is gone, his friends have run out of him, and he finds himself finally just living in the pigsty with the pigs and eating the corn husks that they are fed because he has nowhere else to turn. And in that culture, a pig being an unclean animal, that's the lowest of the low. Finally, he comes to his senses and he says, you know what, my hired hands the hired hands at my father's estate live and eat better than this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go back and say, I'm not worthy to be your son, but just take me in as one of your hired hands. And so you can imagine him all the way walking back, still stinking of pig excrement and rehearsing this speech in his mind over and over again. what he's going to say when he gets to his father's house? But just as he crosses the rise and he can see his father's estate, here comes his father, bolting, sprinting, up the road to meet him. You can imagine the father just waiting day after day for a glimpse of his son coming home. And the minute he sees him, you can almost hear that gasp in him and bolting out the door, pulling up his robes and running. See, Hebrew patriarchs didn't run. That was undignified. Hebrew patriarchs never showed skin in public. That was anathema. He doesn't care. He pulls up his skirts and he runs. And when he gets to his son, the poor kid, you know, still sitting there blinking in the sunlight, and he grabs him, and the, the scripture says that he kissed him, but you have to dig a little deeper, and the sense of that word is, and the way that it's used grammatically means he couldn't stop kissing him. He was showering him with kisses, encircling him and kissing his neck, still stinking of pig excrement. He didn't care. And so when the boy tries to get this well-rehearsed speech out before he can even get a word out, the father is already commanding his servants to kill the fatted calf and to prepare this huge party for his son. See, I think the parable is misnamed. It shouldn't be the prodigal son. It should be the prodigal father. The father is the one who is lavishly, extravagantly spending for him to give the money to the son in the first place would have been considered completely wasteful and extravagant by any Jewish standards. And then when the boy comes back, here he goes again, throwing this great party. What is Jesus trying to get across to us? There's one scholar who said, what this parable should have been named is when dad acts like mom. I like that. That's pretty good, right? When dad acts like mom. When dad just throws it all out there unconditionally, requires nothing, not even a speech, not even a restitution, anything, not even an apology. Just come on, son. When dad acts like mom, he's prodigal. He's throwing everything out there. And here's the thing. Jesus was prodigal too. Do you ever think that really? Jesus was prodigal? Jesus was an extravagant spender? Well, he was certainly called a drunkard and a glutton by those conservatives of his day looking at him because he partied. You know, he did what he did with the people he enjoyed life. He drank and he ate. He didn't fast all the time and put on a gloomy face. He was just out there loving life. Remember when the woman comes to him and pours a whole bottle of perfume on his head and Judas and the and the, and the rest of the disciples are horrified. That was expensive stuff. That money could have been used for the poor and Jesus said, "Hey, wait a minute. Leave her alone." She's done something here really important for me. Jesus didn't care about the money. He cared about the love that made the money flow. That's what it was about. extravagant just flowing outward. He tells all these stories about kings and wedding feasts and banquets that are just lavishly prepared. His first miracle was to turn water into wine so that the party could continue. Jesus was a prodigal too because he was one with the Father and he saw what the Father did, and everything that the Father does is what the Son did as well. So if the Father was this extravagant, even this wasteful in some people's eyes, that's exactly who Jesus was too, because he had finally seen the Father. He had wrestled through what he needed to wrestle through. He had gotten to the point where he could completely submit, completely be one with, and then show us. Exactly what that looks like. And I don't know if this sounds crazy to you. It sounds crazy to me the first time that I finally started to get a sense that this prodigal father of ours is a father who washes our feet, who serves us. Huh? I know. It's so backwards. We're always so focused on serving him and yet he is focused on serving us. And again, Jesus reflecting the father shows us that in spades, but it just doesn't seem to compute to Abba Father. But when we start to get the balance between the awe and the intimacy, between the king and the servant, between the accomplishment and just the being in relationship, then we're starting to get a handle on exactly what Jesus is trying to show us, exactly what he's trying to tell us. And in our lives, what is this wrestling going to look like? I mean, we're not going to be sitting at this banks of a stream and wrestling with somebody. It's not going to look like that. It's not going to look like a burning bush. But what does it look like here now in our lives? Well, it's going to look like life. It's going to look like you living your life, but with presence and awareness, developing that shepherd conscience, consciousness that allows you to see things that you otherwise just powered through and never really took notice of. It's going to be immersing in life, immersing in relationship, taking risks, being the one who is willing to say, I love you first, with no guarantee of return. The one who is ready and willing to break the ice of an argument, be the first one to come forward and apologize, even if you don't think an apology is necessary, just to get the ball rolling with no guarantee that the other person is going to continue to take your head off. It's going to look like falling in love. Being willing to put your heart out there, even if it's for a puppy, let alone a human being, in a way that now makes you vulnerable, makes you hurtable. To be willing to be hurt in order to be in relationship. And after you do get hurt, and of course you will, to remain open after that and to put your heart out there again. This is the wrestling that we do day by day learning to see the miraculous in the mundane, not always looking for the spectacular event, but just being willing to be here now in this trivial moment, insignificant moment, as you might judge it, but to be present enough, to invest enough to find the miracle there, to see the supernatural in the natural, to see truth from wherever it comes and not just from where you expect it to be. All of these things are the wrestling that we do day by day, learning to become prodigal fathers ourselves, prodigal mothers ourselves, willing to extravagantly spend our energy, extravagantly spend resources if called upon, but mostly extravagantly risk ourselves in relationship day by day, moment by moment, whether a person seems to deserve it or not, but just because they're in front of us, we give whatever is required to leave them better than we found them. That's the wrestling that we do. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go into our 40 days and 40 nights of initiation into a rebirth so that we can be renamed at the end of all this? Israel. You know? We are someone who has prevailed with God, striven with God. And part of it is just learning to love and live our relationships as they're presented to us. I wanted to close since it's Father's Day with an article that I came across a couple of years ago. And it just really struck me. I just love this this man's take on fatherhood. This is John Cass from the Chicago Trib. He writes... What are we going to do on Father's Day? Burn some meat? Put on the new polo shirt? (laughs) Say thank you for the cologne you'll never wear? Yeah. Somebody picked the day. It doesn't really matter who picked it. If you're a dad, you know the exact date. It's the day your kids were born. The day your flesh came into the world to confront you. What a line, huh? If you're not a dad, you can't understand it. Not really. Before becoming a father, I thought it was possible to understand... But reason alone doesn't work. Perhaps it happened in a room of balloons and flowers with grandparents and siblings all around, your wife smiling, tired, and video cameras working. Or perhaps you were in the hospital chapel at night bargaining against bad news. However it turned out for you, it was the day God bended and formed you like a link in a chain, connecting you to the generations behind you and the generations hopefully to come. It is the day men stop floating and become rooted in the earth, joined to it, knowing their place in it waits for them because something of them will continue on. The baby's eyes are so big a few minutes after he arrives, so wide, and I was terribly frightened of the stare. I knew the twins couldn't really see me just then, that all they were processing was light and shadow and wonder, but it was frightening all the same. Their eyes demanded accountability. Now they're six-footers with chin-beards, using that body wash that advertisers promise will attract all those gorgeous supermodels. (laughs) They're good kids, but when they were little, people would tell me that they'd become teenagers someday, and it actually happened. Sometimes they tell their mother and me that we just don't understand things, we just don't understand what life is like, and we agree and tell them to take out the garbage anyway and wonder what they'll look like when, they're fa- when they are fathers and don't understand what life is like either. Our Father has experienced all of that with us. It's mind-boggling to think that way, but there's no other way to think. And Jesus tells us over and over again, make that connection The feeling that you have for your children, your willingness to be extravagant with your children is exactly the way that your prodigal father is going to treat you and be there for you. And whatever experience you've had with your earthly father that has maybe twisted and tainted your attitudes and your way of living life, if you are willing to wrestle, if you are willing to experience and finally come face to face with Abba Father, everything will be transformed and you'll be able to live life on a completely different pitch. Let's pray. Father, we can only thank you for being prodigal. We can only thank you for withholding nothing, being willing to spend it all for any given moment, on any given moment, in any given moment, because this is who you are. We're grateful, so grateful, that that is the attitude that you have, That is the relationship that you have with us. Help us to overcome whatever is necessary to be able to have that relationship so clear in our minds and in our hearts that we can act on it, we can live on it, and we can relate that way. Be prodigal to whoever we meet in the course of a day. Thank you, Father, for loving us the way that you do. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank you.